0: Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello everyone, I'm Julie, and here we have episode 274 of Forgotten Classics, chapter three of Heidi's Alp. I must apologize. I have never had such a long hiatus. The holidays came up, and then a lot of other things. I got really busy at work. And then most recently, my mother had a heart attack, and so I wound up going to Florida, and then she was well and home from the hospital, and I was getting ready to come back. And then she had to go to the hospital again, so it was very exciting. I rode in the ambulance, etc. There is nothing as nerve-wracking as trying to decide if you should call 911 or not, if it's not something super obvious, like the person fell down and is twitching. You know, it's just something that's getting worse and worse and worse. So that was an exciting day. Anyway, that isn't necessarily germane to the podcast, except to explain why it has been months and months. And the worst thing is, right before the heart attack and I had to leave, I had this almost ready to go. Except for a couple of things to edit and doing the beginning and the ending. So guess what? (laughs) I'm finally back and have caught up from being gone for two weeks at work. And so now we can proceed with Heidi's Alp a little bit more. I'm not going to do my usual thing. I feel lucky just to get this out here. I know I'm going to have to go back to Florida again in a couple of weeks. And so we may have some more long hiatuses. Or is that hiatus? Someone will tell me, I feel sure. We're going to have some long spells in between, possibly. But we can talk more about that after. Let's get into the book. Long, long ago, in a land far, far away. Well, no, a time far, far away. Last year, we were going to Denmark to track down more of Hans Christian Andersen with Christina Hardiment and her family. Let's get back into it. Dive in, and I'll meet you on the other side. Heidi's Alp, One Family's Search for Storybook Europe, by Christina Hardiment. This book is under copyright and is read with the author's permission. For more details, see the show notes at the blog. Chapter Three The Ugly Duckling Hans Andersen died before I was born, yet I have the feeling that I know him well and that he has been a friend of mine. Karen Blixen, nineteen sixty two. Waved across the border without formalities, we stormed across northern Germany, unnoticed and unnoticing. Motorways are always a powerful disincentive to exploration. There is something about the endless ribbon ahead, which makes the foot push down on the accelerator, the eyes set in a blinkered forward glaze, the mind concentrated on a far-off objective, oblivious to the tempting distractions signaled off down the slip roads. To exit seems a defeat. My concentration was intensified by the darkness.' once i got used to the german juggernauts sweeping past with their massive trailers leaving bertha tossing from side to side in their slipstream i found i was enjoying the regular pace the night-lit cities we passed the slumbering silence behind me tilly was sitting up in the cab that evening guardian of my thermos of strong black coffee and the chocolate biscuits it was a good chance for a gossip We don't get enough time alone together at the best of times, and it takes a little while to switch to talking person to person instead of using my normal mother-of-four public address system. Bremen, she said suddenly, off at the next junction. Weren't we going to go there? It was only ten o'clock. I felt ready to tackle several hundred more kilometers. All there is to commemorate the Grimm Brothers' Four Musicians of Bremen is a modern statue in the town's main square. Nor was it a story that had much seized our imaginations. Motorway mania drove us on to the distant new horizon of Denmark. By twelve-thirty the coffee was finished, and Tilly had dozed off. Although I still felt wide awake, I decided that the macho thrill of getting places ought to be tempered by responsible thoughts about my cargo. The Autobahn lay-bys in Germany are roomy, set well back off the road, and equipped with every convenience. It seemed a waste of time and money to go off in search of a proper campsite, so I drew into the next lay-by and followed the arrows away from the lorries and toward the cars. A welcoming sign suggested we make ourselves at home, and we did. I picked Tilly up and tucked her in beside Jane and Sarah, it didn't seem worth hauling out the mattress that night, so I just rolled myself up in my sleeping bag, curled round the gear stick, and fell asleep more quickly than I had thought possible. Sarah gave the alarm at four thirty, and since dawn was breaking I took off again while the girls slept on, past Hamburg, black etched against a golden turquoise sky, under the Elbe, and north to the Danish border. We stopped at a high-tech motorway cafe, which offered showers as well as breakfast. The girls spent most of their time trying out taps that turned on magically as they walked up to the hand basins. Sarah gave the automatic doors a brisk workout. Jane and I drank third-rate coffee and munched the foamy factory-baked rolls uncritically. Denmark, Hans Christian's own country, made a fine entrance into the story. The sun shone out as we crossed the border, and a patriotic line of red and white flags waved a welcome. A lean, tanned Dane looked into the van and gave the girls a blue eyed smile, a happy contrast to the Flemish indifference at Hook. Soon we were spotting other national differences. The road signs told us to forget the Dutch problem of slender legged roe deer scampering in front of our wheels. Instead, fully antlered stags would walk purposefully forward. School children, too, were clearly more dignified than in Holland. There they were drawn as racing, pigtailed pell-mell across the road. Here they would walk calmly, briefcases in hand. Perhaps this sedateness of approach was due to the very low traffic density. Denmark has only a third of Holland's population spread over a slightly larger country driving was getting easier. My left-right reflexes had switched themselves over, and now being on the wrong side came naturally. I had realized that there were two ways to drive such vehicles as Bertha. Timidly, a large white rabbit at the mercy of motorway wolves and cut-in city stoats, or with confident panache, using our size to discourage lesser vehicles from taking liberties. We had graduated to the second technique by now, and were careering along in fine style, the flower garland still looped raffishly across the bonnet. Given the long, straight Danish roads, the van could be nursed up to a thrilling speed, and with the wind behind us we occasionally touched sixty miles an hour. The children were already eagerly leafing through the Legoland brochures we had been sent in England. But Bielund is 120 kilometers or so from the frontier, and we decided to investigate the coast on the way. This was the best weather so far. There might even be the chance of a sail. We turned east off the E3 motorway at Harerslev because the map showed a promising-looking little island close to the coast. The Danes are a seafaring nation, their country a pattern of islands, nearly 500 in all and I wanted to extend the children's vision of Denmark beyond pastries and bacon. We found ourselves driving through lush, rolling farmland. The houses were longer and lower than the hump-backed Dutch barns, with rows of windows flanking the front doors and thatched roofs, not unlike the halls in Norse sagas. They were painted surprising colors, terracotta, ochre, a rich green, with window frames dark in contrast. The gateway to the island of Aro was the port of Arosund. It boasted a small and smelly smoked fish factory, a tiny harbor mole curling round to a bright white lighthouse, and not much else. The ferry that crossed to the island every hour held only a dozen cars, and there was no competition for places. The gray-bearded captain, clearly a retired Viking, was surprised to see us. Were we sure we didn't think he was sailing for Fuenen, the much larger island to the east beyond Aro? That was more common for foreigners. Reassured that we were not lost, just exploring, he invited us up into his wheelhouse. It was a well-varnished, brass-trimmed irie with a proper helm to turn as well as a modern electric-sounding device." The fifteen-minute voyage was not a taxing command, but we felt sure he presided over it with dignity. He picked Susie up and sat her high on the console so she could see every detail of our approach to Aro. Only two hundred people lived there, he told us, even fewer in the winter. All it has are flat, fertile pastures, lakes running into the sea, and rambling farmhouses where the ugly duckling might have started life. I told him about our quest for fairy tales, and he nodded approvingly. You know of Andersen, then. Nowadays every Dane is proud of him, the most famous writer our country has produced. Things weren't always like that, though. People used to make a lot of fun of him. They said he didn't write proper Danish. He was rather an embarrassment with his openness. All his feelings were on the outside. Most Danes are more... Hmm, hidden, less vulnerable. And I don't think they understood what he was trying to do very well. The captain picked Susie off his console and checked a reading, then popped her up again. But Anderson was more sophisticated than most of them, even though he came from a very poor home. That's why he never stayed in Denmark for long. He got more admiration abroad. Now, of course, we all think a lot of him but it was a long time before he was as respected in his own country as he was in Germany, for example, or in your England. But now, I think he is only read by children in England and America. Now it is us in Denmark who take him more seriously. I knew he was quite right. Most of the sophisticated literary criticism now being done on Hans Andersen is in Danish or German. In England and America he is Disney fodder, rarely read in respectable translations, although not to do so means we lose as much subtlety and wit as we would if we read Jane Austen in comic strip form. But I thought there was more to Anderson's traveling than escape from his unappreciative fellow countrymen. He traveled to furnish his mind with ideas, to become a citizen of the world instead of an accepted inmate of the Danish pond. He had the same virus of restlessness that drove John Steinbeck on across America, the same wanderlust that was sending us off on our travels, and his journeying was the essence of his art. It gave him the perspective and distance that makes his story so hauntingly international. We drove off the ferry and took the van as far across the island as we could, ending up on a sandy seashore edged with low grassy dunes. Within minutes, the girls had donned their swimsuits, grabbed towels, and rushed out to swim. Although the wind was bracing, and the sea recently melted ice, they were soon prancing in and out of the low breakers. All it needed to make my life perfect in Jane's and my eyes were a couple of sailboards. As if in answer to a matron's prayer, two vivid sails dipped and rose at the other side of the lake that almost met the sea just behind us. I dashed into the van and unearthed my wetsuit, just to hint at our oneness with the windsurfing fraternity. Then we stationed ourselves casually on the shoreline. The sails came closer and closer, skimming across the water to where we were standing. A blonde man and girl stepped off them, German visitors who spoke good English. They nodded in a friendly way, and we started the sort of sailing small talk common to all countries— "'the epic carved jibes, the failed water-starts, "'the benefits of battens and double-concave hulls. Hmm, "'But that was all. "'The hoped-for invitation to try out their boards never materialized. "'With a gay wave, they flitted away to continue their honeymoon. "'Oh, well, the boards had been bulbous beasts, "'probably pigs to turn and unreliable on a beat.' or so we decided later, like foxes sourly reflecting on grapes. At least the wetsuit made the Baltic waters almost bearable. Meanwhile, the girls had spread themselves out in fine style on their brightly striped towels, complete with Snoopy-trimmed sunglasses to give a Miami air to the whole. I got out the camping table, some red and white folding chairs, a can of lager and my typewriter, and began to record our impressions of Denmark so far. Sarah sat under the table, fingering the wetsuit's ankle zips and fumbling for mouthfuls of the deliciously salty sand. Jane sank back in the cab with her knitting and a beer. Tilly and Daisy decided to make the lunch, and disappeared into the back of the van. A little later they emerged with warmed-up French sticks split in half and stuffed with pâté, lettuce, hard-boiled egg, cheese, and mayonnaise. Clearly the Continent was firing up their culinary imaginations. They would never have mixed up anything so radical at home. All was good humor until I took my plate into the van to wash it up. Why did you decide to fill the rolls on the seat cushions instead of the table? I asked in as neutral a tone as I could manage. It seemed a shame to criticize such a good effort. "'but the sight of the smears of yolk and butter "'all over the upholstered seats was somehow lowering, Tilly sniffed. "'Well, we can't put the table up. "'It always collapses on my foot, "'and we wanted it to be a surprise. "'Oh, well, if you don't want us to help, we won't.' "'Chores were a problem in the van.' A sudden stop used to send everything hurtling to the floor, and we had become accustomed when in motion to wading through books, food, shoes, pens, and paper as if they were slurry in a cow shed. There wasn't enough space for more than one person to clear up at a time, so tasks like sweeping out the constantly crumb laden floor or washing up in the minute sink were impossible to do simultaneously. Susie made more mess than the other three put together, but I yelled at them all equally so offending the sensibilities of Tilly and Daisy, who were the best at tidying up. It was, in fact, far easier and quicker to do everything myself, but that seemed immoral. So I would find myself suddenly and unpredictably exploding into wrath at the unfairness of it all, then contritely apologizing for my unreasonableness. Still, we were learning— Lunch had been delicious, and next time I'd make sure the table was up before operations began. The wind moved rapidly up the Beaufort scale. As soon as the breeze freshened, the sailors had abandoned the lake, giving Jane and me a comfortable feeling of superiority about what we would have done had we only had sails. The gale increased. We watched a schooner plowing into the wind, its masts bare poles. "'We began to wonder if the ferry would make it back to the mainland in a Force Eight, "'and decided to pack up quickly and cross while it was a mere five or six. "'Our ancient mariner was unperturbed. "'Nothing short of a hurricane delayed his sailings,' he assured us. "'Where were we off to? Legoland, "'Wonderful place. "'More visited than Tivoli these days,' he'd heard. "'About an hour's drive, perhaps a little longer in the van, "'a paradise for children.' Have a good time. Bavel We headed north to Bilund, once just a small market town, now a major industrial center sporting the second largest airport in Denmark. All because a toy maker's son had a bright idea for an improvement on the oldest toy in the world building blocks. Gottfried Kirk Christensen started work with his father at the age of twelve. They made wooden toys until the 1940s, when they bought a plastic injection molding machine which made, among other things, automatic binding bricks. Soon the bricks were given a snappier name, one which became synonymous with the company. Lego came from the Danish words, leg got play well. In the later 1950s, the unique Lego stud and tube coupling system was patented, and their export markets have now spread all over the world. Legoland was originally intended as a static showplace home for the complex Lego constructions used in publicity campaigns, but it rapidly became a shrine for Lego freaks in its own right. Half a million people came to Denmark last year for the novelty of walking around in a true toy town world, a nursery come to life. Susie looked in awe at the red-coated steward who ushered us in. His buttons are bits of yellow Lego. So are the door handles, Daisy pointed out. Giant Lego. The curtains in the reception office had the letters LEGOLAND woven diagonally into the fabric. The ceiling of the special LEGOLAND post office had lights shining through the tube couplings of black mega-LEGO blocks. We walked through a huge LEGO boutique, and the girls rushed from pack to pack covetously. I thought about buying them enormous sets of LEGO to provide happy occupation over the next few weeks— "'then thought about it underfoot in the van and reconsidered. "'It was just as well I did. "'Legoland is no bargain basement. Fifty pounds trickled effortlessly through my purse that day. "'But we were, after all, six, not counting Sarah, "'and four of us tireless riders of cars, trains, monorails, "'roller coasters, boats, roundabouts, and ponies. "'And everything, except the ponies,' seemed to be made of Lego. The effect is to feel your own scale reduced as you charge around in cars, boats, or trains which seem identical to the little models made on the playroom carpet back at home. The ponies were part of Lego Rideau, a reconstructed Wild West town for the benefit of the Lego sick. (laughs) Like a Hollywood film set, it has stores, saloons, sheriff, and riding stables and a small contingent of good-natured red Indians who howled us politely through their headdresses and invited us to toast twists of dough over a real campfire. Overall looms an enormous gray Lego model of the sculpted presidential heads of Mount Rushmore, the American Mount Olympus. In the saloons, American visitors can eat apple pie just like Mom used to make, and pour out generous quantities of coffee from red enamel pots. Though Ellie returned several times for a pony ride, on the whole, we avoided Lego Rideau as a distraction from the real point of it all. Quantities and quantities of Lego in every conceivable form. Lego World illustrates different styles of town life in minute detail. There are Lego dresses in the Amsterdam shop windows, Lego Geisha girls in the shadow of a Lego pagoda, Lego ships nosing round a Lego Copenhagen harbor. According to the park brochure, a Norwegian schoolteacher from the Lofoten Islands was quite overcome when she recognized her hometown correctly reconstructed in every detail. "'That's the school I teach in!' she exclaimed in disbelief. We were a little less impressed by the slice of old England, an odd amalgam of York, Chester, and Stamford, but the general impression of architecture worldwide was excellent." we could save a lot of time and money just by staying here, Jane suggested dryly. See the world on the spot. There's a good baby-changing room at this campsite. The bright colors and cheerful shapes and faces of Legoland were keeping Sarah very contented, and she watched with absorbed interest as the girls swept past her in one bizarre vehicle after another. Children's traffic parks are as much a feature of Danish life as Dutch, and Legoland has a challengingly intricate layout, with garages, traffic lights, level crossings, and hairpin bends. The girls were issued with Lego-made Union Jacks to attach to the front of their Lego-look electric cars, and then set off to master driving on the right-hand side of the road. The controller could hail them in the language of their flag through his loudspeaker if they drove through a red light, or failed to make a hand signal in time. At one point, whistles blew, lights flashed, and the level crossing gates closed so that the Legoland Express, crowded by now with sightseers, could trundle through the scene. Poor Susie was exiled from this little paradise because she was two years too young. But she was comforted by the Duplo Dodgems next door, unpatrolled by policemen, where she could achieve breakneck speeds of up to four miles an hour. We lunched extravagantly in the Legoland restaurant, then digested it on the stately Duplo monorail that offered a bird's-eye view of Duploville. At least Sarah, Jane, and I did. The girls preferred the insanely swirling speed of the Legocentric Caterpillar. By now jaded with Lego, Jane and I wandered into the toy museum to look at Titania's Palace, the most incredible doll's house in the world. It was built by an Englishman, Sir Neville Wilkinson, for his daughter Gwendolyn, because she believed in fairies. Even with twelve skilled cabinet-makers to help him, it took twenty years to build. Did Gwendolyn still believe in fairies as she turned thirty and took final possession? We doubted it somehow. This was a home for mannequins, not magic, although startlingly beautiful and complete down to the tiniest detail nursery friezes in the style of Alden and Hassel, a mother-of-pearl paper knife on the inlaid Queen Anne Secretaire. Legoland bought the palace at Christie's in 1978 and spent three years repairing and restoring it. But the contrast between the strict cubic structures that Lego dictates and the exquisite craftsmanship of Titania's palace was not altogether a happy case. I began to feel the limitations of Lego as a medium, the hard edges it puts on the imagination. Although the girls loved to recall their day in Legoland, like Dunrell, it remains a highlight of the trip. By five o'clock, they had had enough. We walked out through the Lego boutique, but there was no demand at all to buy Lego sets. Maybe future engineers are demoralized as well as impressed by the sophistication of the exhibits. What Ellie and Susie did spend twenty minutes pondering over was which of the doll's house miniatures on sale they would buy. In the end, they each bought the same, an inch-long chest bound in brass to hold the tiniest of treasures. Prominent beside the gates of Legoland, we saw a bronze statue of a seated man, Hans Anderson, of course, reminding us of the real point of our journey— It was a copy of the very statue about which he wrote so indignantly in the last year of his life, the statue that he felt would show him as a poet for all ages, not just a teller of children's tales. In the end, Sabi did him justice. There isn't a child in sight. A cloak is slung around Anderson's shoulders. His face is long, bony, and ugly, with a large but gentle mouth and the hooded eyes of a visionary. He holds a book in one hand and raises the other in emphasis as he tells a story to an imaginary audience. That night we drove to his birthplace, Onche, now the second largest town in Denmark. We arrived too late to check into a campsite, so we parked discreetly in a back street for the night, then moved to the central car park beside the town hall for breakfast. As well as space to park, there was space to play. A scarlet-painted castle with rocking-horse steeds outside had been thoughtfully built there for the benefit of bored children. Jane and I bought hot, fresh bread for breakfast from a nearby baker, then sipped coffee peacefully while the Bastille was being stormed outside the window. Our first visit was an undramatic one, a low-eaved, one-story house in Munchmüllerstrasse, now almost swamped by the modern buildings that run down to it from the town center. Most people bypass this small shrine, known to be Hans Andersen's childhood home, in favor of the better-known museum on the other side of the town. When we rang the doorbell, a thin elderly lady opened it and showed us into a narrow room, empty except for an upright iron stove at the back its bareness was disappointing at first, particularly as we had expected to find it unchanged from Anderson's own description of it in his autobiography. One single room, nearly all the space filled up with my father's shoemaker's workshop, the bed and a bench where I slept. This was the home of my childhood, but the walls were covered with pictures— On the chest of drawers there were cups and glasses and ornaments, and over the workshop by the window there was a shelf with books and songs. In the kitchen, over a cupboard where we kept the food, there was a rack full of plates. The little room seemed to me big and wonderful. The door itself, with its landscape paintings on the panels, was as much to me then as a whole art gallery. From the kitchen we could go up a ladder into the attic, and in the pipes between our house and the one next door there was a little box of soil with chives and parsley. This was all the garden my mother had. In my story, the Snow Queen, those plants are still growing. But our guide was inspired a conjurer of atmosphere, waving her hand to create a ghostly cobbler's last, a child's seat beside the stove, a weary mother sitting in the corner with a pile of darning on her knee. She led us through to what had once been the house next door, and is now an Anderson reliquary. "'Here a family of six children lived, also in one room,' she told us. "'Compared to them Anderson was generously lodged.' Perhaps the memory of a friendship with one of them was Anderson's inspiration for Kay and Gerda in The Snow Queen, but two poor children, who weren't brother and sister, but were just as fond of each other as if they had been, whose parents were next-door neighbors living in attics, with boxes of roses growing in the gutters between the two roofs." She pointed out the pictures on the walls showing Anch as it once was, a low-lying city, rich in curved tile roofs and wide cobbled streets. The most touching exhibit of all was a small pincushion, shabby now, but once bright satin, painstakingly made by Anderson as a boy for a parson's widow who lived in the almshouses opposite Ilskau's dwellings. It was she who first gave him respect for poetry, her husband had written popular verse. She also introduced him to Shakespeare. Apparently he was most enthralled by the melodramatic scenes, the three weird sisters on the heath, the ghost on the ramparts of Elsinore. One of his favorite occupations as a child was his homemade puppet theater, for which he made and dressed a legion of characters. He was evidently extraordinarily neat-fingered. Far more significant than the poverty of this little Anche household was the character of Anderson's parents. His father was a free thinker and a romantic who nourished his son's literary imagination with such books as the Arabian Nights, La Fontaine's Fables, and the satirical comedies of Ludwig Holberg, the Danish Moliere. Those three works alone could go a long way to summarizing the combination of fantasy, dry moral wit, and social satire that characterizes Anderson's best work. His father loved the theater, and passed on his enthusiasm, taking the small boy to the local playhouse whenever they could afford it. When they couldn't, Hans used to beg a poster from the theater and make up a plot to suit it all by himself. Anderson Sr. was also extremely politically aware, His hero was Napoleon, and his final quixotic gesture was to join the Danish forces that set out to support the French just before the disastrous defeat at Leipzig in 1813. Health shattered, he returned home and died in 1816, still raving of Napoleon. Although she was barely literate and highly superstitious— Anne Maria Anderson behaved toward her son in a way that modern psychologists have calculated would be bound to nourish a powerful sense of self in a child. Much more important than her casual sexual morality or her alcoholic tendency was the deep and protective love she showed toward him. She never forgot his father's advice. No matter what the boy wants to be, if it is the silliest thing in the world, let him have his own way. So Hans was never forced to stay at a school or in a job which he disliked. He developed a feeling of his own specialness, which ended up with his setting off to seek his fortune on the streets of Copenhagen, aged only fourteen, for all the world like Dick Whittington. He acknowledged his debt to his mother in many of his tales. The story of a mother idealized that totally generous love. She was good for nothing— the story of a washerwoman betrayed by her aristocratic lover excused her weaknesses. After Munk mollestrasse we walked across the center of Anche to find the Andersenhus, the well-known museum devoted to Hans Andersen. Here he is supposed... Though not guaranteed to have been born on second April eighteen o five, and here are preserved the enormous quantities of letters, diaries, papers, and accumulated ephemera he left behind him. Weary after the Harlem pumping station fiasco, I was prepared to compromise to split the party between the excellent little playground in the main square and the museum itself. But there was no need to worry. The museum is beautifully planned built around a duck pond with a fine nesting house complete with wooden gangplank. In one large room stuffed with hundreds of thousands of foreign language editions of Anderson's tales and lined with illustrations for his stories in every imaginable style, visitors can sit down on a comfortable sofa, pick up a telephone, and hear a story read in their own language. Tilly tried hearing French and English versions of Thumbelina simultaneously. Sarah talked back into her receiver— delighted to find a captive audience. Anderson, it appears, never threw anything away, and the girls found the rich hoard of relics engrossing. His school reports, the letters he illuminated with rough ink sketches, the train tickets and trivial receipts, hundreds of fan letters with exotic stamps, even a correspondence with Anna Maria Livingstone, daughter of the famous African explorer. Best of all were the sentimental mementos, love letters, dried flowers, locks of hair, and the battered leather pouch containing a letter from his first love, which was found round his neck when he died. One part of the museum is full of drawings, collages, and paper cuts made by Anderson himself. He was famous for the intricate paper cuttings which he tossed off for the amusement of the children he met but which were evidently so much more than that. Charles Dickens' son, Henry, who was eight when Anderson visited his Kent home at Gadshill in 1857, recalled them in his memoirs. He had one beautiful accomplishment, which was the cutting out in paper, with an ordinary pair of scissors, of lovely little figures of sprites and elves, gnomes, fairies, and animals of all kinds which might have stepped out of the pages of his book. More than 1,500 survive, a weird world of disturbing visions made solid. A great-niece of the Copenhagen Colin family was more perceptive about them than young Henry. They were, so to speak, little fairy tales, not illustrations for his written tales, but expressions of the same imagination. As in his writings, he was essentially concerned with a limited series of motifs, which he went on repeating— there were castles, swans, goblins, angels, cupids, and other imaginary characters, many hearts, a dead man hanging in a gallows, a chamberlain with his key hanging on his back, a windmill in the shape of a man. Other more bizarre motifs were snarling devils, naked witches with four or more breasts, and bleakly desolate pierrots. Again and again the same two turned up a stork the embodiment of the Daddy Longlegs image he had of himself, and a ballerina, as if he could never shake off some childhood image of a graceful little girl. Anderson himself, I believe, was always haunted by a shadow, the image of his lost half-sister, Karen. Karen was his mother's illegitimate daughter, farmed out to her grandmother six years before Hans himself was born. At first, she lived a strange, half-concealed existence at Bonse, a two-day journey from Unse. But in 1802, registers show her living with the same grandmother in Unse itself. Considering how Frank Anderson appeared to be about most of his childhood, his direct references to her are oddly rare. In 1822, she too went to Copenhagen to seek her fortune, but her fate was a far more predictable one than Anderson's. She joined her aunt Christiane, a prosperous brothel-keeper. Like Mozart's sister, she vanished from history, but not from Anderson's dreams or his stories. The thought that she might reappear in his life filled him with a mixture of hope and dread, and three tales in particular—the Snow Queen, the Red Shoes, and the Girl Who Trod on a Loaf—seemed to sum up his relationship, real and imagined, with her. Little Gerda is Karen as she never was, devoted to her brother and prepared to risk any danger for him. The proud, pretty little girl in the red shoes came closer to her true character, but the respite Anderson created for her in that tale was never achieved. She sank into the mire of a prostitute's life, just as the girl who trod on the loaf to save her pretty feet sinks into the marshwoman's swamp— "'a black bubbling pool full of damp toads and fat snakes.' "'She did, in fact, reappear in his life, but only once or twice, "'and Anderson's references to the occasions are laconic in the extreme. "'1842, 11 February. "'Sent a letter to Karen expecting her husband to call. "'1842, 12 February. "'Karen's husband Kaufman called. "'He looked honest and decent.' I gave him four rick's dollars. He was very happy. So was I. Eighteen forty-two, thirtieth September. Visit by Karen this morning. She looked quite well dressed and young. I gave her one rick's dollar. A year later, the last reference to Karen occurs. Eighteen forty-three, thirtieth September. My sister announced herself at the Porter's Lodge. Whether Anderson saw her or not is not known. The official registers of Copenhagen show that Karen Marie Anderson was sharing a room with a Peter Kaufman, an unmarried laborer of 29 in 1840. She was described as a washerwoman and gave her age as 32, although she must have been at least 40. The registers also show that she died in 1846, leaving no children and was buried in a pauper's grave. No one attended the funeral. There are three more small pointers to the truth about their relationship, although, of course, the truth will never be known. Karen Marie's surname was not Anderson at all, but Rosenvinch. Why, then, did she take her brother's name, but not seek publicity about their connection? And why did Anderson always call her his mother's daughter, rather than his sister, when his favorite compliment to his many women friends was to describe them as sisters? himself as their brother. Finally, what relationship did Karen bear to the heroine of Anderson's novel, Only a Fiddler, written in 1837? As Anderson's biographer, Elias Bredstorff, points out, Naomi is a complete opposite to the book's hero Christian. Daring where he is timid, sensual where he is puritanical and ascetic, cynical and sophisticated where he is naive and prone to tears. Although a musical genius, Christian is too pedestrian for Naomi. She elopes with a wastrel and ends up miserably married to a dissolute marquis. She passes through her hometown just in time to see her childhood sweetheart being carried to a pauper's grave. The end of the novel is an ironic reversal of the brother and sister's actual fates. Its moral, though, is appropriate enough. Genius is an egg in need of warmth in need of the fertilization of good fortune. Otherwise, it will only be a wind egg. In the museum, we discovered a reconstruction of the room in Copenhagen, which was Anderson's base in his last years. It was unexceptional, quite characterless, except for the leather luggage which was heaped casually in the center of the room as if its owner had just arrived and had gone to ask Cook what was for dinner. There was a hat box and a length of thick rope on top of the suitcases, an umbrella, and a walking stick leaned against them. The rope reflected Anderson's characteristic nervousness. It was a makeshift fire escape in case he was ever trapped in the upper room of a hotel when it caught fire. A pair of high, square-toed boots worn into the shape of their owner's feet stood forlornly at attention at one side. I could almost hear a story beginning to unfold. A pair of boots that had given good service once asked to their master's umbrella which of them it considered as the most useful. The luggage had all the personality that the room lacked, not surprisingly, since it, rather than any set of furniture, was Anderson's constant companion. "'To live is to travel,' he once said. "'Then life takes on vitality. You do not feed on your own blood as the pelican, but on nature in all its greatness.' the metaphor is an odd one, half Christian, half masochistic. It is clear that if he stayed in any one place too long, he was seized with self-doubt. He traveled for distraction from some inner demon as much as for inspiration. For despite his profound confidence in his own genius, the legacy perhaps of his parents' faith in him, he was racked with self-doubt. He evidently found his physical appearance loathsome, and one unkind contemporary nickname the Danes gave him was that of Our Beloved orang Was he really as ugly as he feared? As a small boy, he claimed to have been pretty enough to be mistaken for a girl, so it must have been a traumatic experience to grow into a tall, gangling stork of a man, with a mouth like a toad and a nose that was not only prominent, but askew. In Picture Book Without Pictures, he draws himself as Punchinello, hideous to look at. But the inner man, the soul, ah, that was richly endowed. No one had deeper feelings or greater elasticity of mind than he. The theatre was his ideal world. If he had been slender and well-made, he would have been the first to tragedian on any stage. As it is, Punchinello loses his adored columbine to the dashing harlequin. It would have been far too comic in real life if Beauty and the Beast had joined hands. Perhaps this sense of beauty lost was what lay behind his constant search for admiration. He loved being photographed, and in his comment on one picture taken when he was fifty-six, an age at which most people have become resigned to their appearance, he could still sound as excited over a flattering picture as the ugly duckling felt on seeing its swan image reflected in the water. I was completely surprised, amazed that the sunlight could make such a figure of beauty out of my face. I am incredibly flattered, and yet it is only photography. You shall see, it will be the only portrait which my vanity will wish to be left for later generations. How many young ladies will say, fancy him never marrying? But when, aged only fourteen, he left Unze for the golden city of Copenhagen in 1819, it was with none of these later doubts. He was out to make his fortune, And by sheer force of personality, as much as by evident talent, he did so. Once again, I have to admire the way that Christina meant so seamlessly, seemingly, combines their adventures with the stories and the authors, such as in this part, Hans Christian Andersen, which will continue in the next chapter. I have to say, this book is not the easiest book to read out loud, one because of all the foreign place names. And that's, you know, just because I don't know how to say things in Danish and those sorts of languages. The other is because sometimes there are books which read beautifully when you're just reading to yourself, and they are difficult to read out loud somehow. I know that Heather at Craftlet mentioned this when she was having people read chapters of the Scarlet Letter, and I read the introduction to that for her. And I was having that problem is the sentences, They scan so beautifully, but somehow when you're reading them out loud, a lot of times you'd have to read them two or three times to get the emphasis right. And I'm kind of running into that with Heidi's Alp. And I think what I'm going to do is treat these three chapters that I have done as a good sampler of the book. And I probably won't read any more of it. I highly encourage you to find it on Amazon. This is not necessarily also any problem with anything other than maybe me as the reader. As we all know, I'm an amateur. So a professional narrator might glide right over it. But as I've been reading ahead, I have continually been having to stop myself at the point where I would then come back and read out loud to you guys. So this book is just still wonderful. There's so much of it left. The chapter I read ends on page 54, and the book actually has, let's see, something like 245, 250 pages. So there's a lot of it, and they go all over the place, and plus, since it is in the 1980s that this was written, they're running into situations such as what happens when you unknowingly are in the mountains, and you go past where the Cold War lines are. With your family in your little caravan, and the soldiers come. So it's very exciting. They go to Italy, they go all over. Really, go get this book. Do not let the fact that I'm not continuing to read it to you stop you from enjoying it. Also, I would like, in connection with the book, to say thank you to the very kind listener who sent me the Horlicks sample for Christmas time. I mean, not only did I get a wonderful email with it, but I loved the Horlicks. It was like malted milk. Our whole family actually really enjoyed it. I don't know why I'd never thought of a hot milk drink aside from cocoa. That's just not how we roll in this country, I guess. And I have to admit that the packaging, calling it a nutritious milk beverage, is not really what is going to attract somebody. But when I say warm malted milk... That also doesn't sound great, but I'm just saying, everybody who tasted it said, oh, is there more in the pan? Can I get some more of that? I looked. You can get it on Amazon, and I am ready to replenish my supply. Okay, and now we come to a little bit of Forgotten Classics podcast news. I have been struggling, as we know, to find the time to record certainly this chapter And I've been noticing that I don't necessarily miss reading out loud right now to anybody. I'm not sure if that means I just need a good hiatus or if Forgotten Classics has run its course. I do have six or seven books on my Kindle that I would really love to read sometime, but just probably not right now. When I look back at the records, I can hardly believe that I've been doing this since 2007. So we have a lot of books in the library, for one thing, which you can find by looking at the tabs at the top of the page. And, of course, also I have a books tab, so you can find that sort of thing, too. I think for right now, I would encourage you to explore the library. I hate to just say I'm not coming back but I also hate to promise something that I'm not sure if I can keep. I'm kind of up in the air about the whole thing, and I hate to leave you up in the air about the whole thing, but here we all are together. So for now, we'll just leave it open-ended. All the episodes will stay here. I'm not going to do anything with them. I'll leave the feed as it is on iTunes, and hopefully I will get my mojo back and come back with another thrilling book for us to enjoy together. And until then, thank you so much for all the listening you've done over the last seven years. I really appreciate it. As I've said before, I would not have been reading those stories out loud if it weren't for you listening, and I enjoyed them so much that way because of it. Thanks so much, everyone. Bye-bye.